0: Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb. And welcome to Episode 27, The French and Indian War, Part 2. Now when we left off last week, Andrew, George
1: Washington and his colonial militia just walked all the way back to Virginia with their tails between their legs after getting defeated at Fort Necessity.
0: And now the French have taken over the Forks of the Ohio and they're pretty much in control of the whole western frontier.
1: Now, the colonists have shown themselves to be pretty much incompetent. The Burgesses and the other governors don't really want to raise all this money for another expedition, so they write a letter to the King of England and they say, hey, uh, your majesty, we are your uh, loyal servants and we would really appreciate it if you would send some soldiers over here. And in the past, the king was always kind of hesitant to send troops to North America because it's very expensive. Uh, Commissioned officers and soldiers make Quite a bit of money. They're not like the volunteer militia that get paid a weekly stipend of a glass of rum. These are people you have to pay every day. You've got to buy cannon, you've got to ship them all over there with horses. So it's just very expensive. So the king has always been very reluctant to send large amounts of troops to North America. But he's starting to get word from his advisors that. It might be best to send an army there, and that's because they're starting to worry that the Americans are going to start raising their own armies and become self-sufficient. And whenever you have somebody paying taxes to you, you don't want them to become self-sufficient. You want them to be dependent on you. So he gets a Scot. And what was the Scot's name, Andrew? His name was
0: uh, Mr. Edward Braddock III. Edward Braddock Third, And they make him commander-in-chief of all armed forces in the North American theater of war.
1: Now, Braddock wants to jump right into this. This is a great opportunity to really distinguish himself. He has a fairly good track record as a general, but he hasn't done any real scorched earth campaigns where he really had to fight. He's always been more of an administrator type general. And he's never been to North America before. Exactly, and that's going to be one of the main things that comes to bite him in the butt. He sends a guy named Sir John St. Clair ahead of him to get things ready, to start getting the campaign in order in North America, uh, while Braddock starts to get things ready on the English side. So on January 8th, 1755, Braddock sets sail for North America. How long does it take him to get there? It takes him a long time. It takes him uh, more than a month and a half. And normally with good weather, you can get there in less than a month, sometimes even three weeks. So he had a miserable time. It seems like everybody that goes from... Europe to America on a ship for the first time has a horrible time, but he wrote that he had a horrible time, and when he arrives in Virginia, things aren't really what he was expecting. He was expecting to show up there and St. Clair would have all the wagons ready, all the soldiers in order, and all the money from all the colonists would be in a great big chest of gold waiting for him to spend. You mean it wasn't? Like all the European expectations of America, it just doesn't quite live up to what they hope or expect. There is very few wagons, very few horses. The colonies right away promised to give lots of money, but even though on paper it said that they were going to give
0: them this money, it, it never really materialized. That's what you've got to come to realize at this point in colonial American history. You have these 13 autonomous colonial governments doing whatever they want, And there's no central figure here ordering them to do anything. That's right. A lot of these colonies have
1: their own currency. So you would have one pound of Virginia current money, but that might be only worth half of what one pound sterling would be. Or maybe
0: much less. Yes. Braddock and his administration are just dealing with a whole host of these issues. And
1: Braddock is quoted saying the campaign has failed before it even started. He told all his officers, he gathered them all together, and he said, we're going to have to go back to Europe because we're not even able to get this. We've got all these men here, but we have no way to transport anything. So this expedition's at an end. Until somebody offers assistance. Yeah, out of the blue, the Pennsylvania Postmaster General shows up. He claims he's there on business, but a lot of people suspect that he's heard that Braddock and Sir John St. Clair have been really complaining about the colonies, and particularly Pennsylvania, because up until then, Pennsylvania had given them almost no support whatsoever. So rumor had it, Braddock was writing back to the king, kind of really ratting on Pennsylvania. And this man, Benjamin Franklin... Heard of it. So he shows up and he comes up to Braddock, and Braddock ends up saying that he was a great gentleman and he said he's the only man he met in all Pennsylvania that showed any character or honor. But Franklin comes up and he gives Braddock a little advice. He basically says, Why did you land in Virginia? You do know that there's no wagons or horses here because they all grow tobacco. Pennsylvania, we grow corn and flour. So there's lots of wagons and there's also lots of food. I could probably go and get you lots of wagons and lots of food. And Braddock says, you could? Right away, Benjamin Franklin goes back to Pennsylvania and he comes up with just a brilliant idea to save the expedition. Pennsylvania at the time, Andrew, what are the majority of the civilians there.
0: Well, you've got a good mix of population of pacifist Quakers and German immigrants. Now, Germans, that's what I'm looking for.
1: We mentioned this gentleman, Sir John St. Clair. Now, St. Clair, he had quite a history before this campaign. He was a professional soldier and he would go and work for a lot of different governments. One of them in particular was the Hungarian Hussars. He actually had a Hussar uniform, even though he wasn't Hungarian, He just fought for so many different crowns in Europe. He had a reputation of being a crazy warlord, uh, fire and brimstone type of guy. Total war. Even though he had just arrived, he already had a pretty big reputation. So Benjamin Franklin, he writes up this propaganda. And he prints it in German sections of Pennsylvania. And he says, the Hussar, Sir John St. Clair, and General Braddock are very angry with Pennsylvania. And St. Clair has just asked Braddock if he can come through and teach Pennsylvania a lesson since the expedition has failed due to no wagons or supplies. St. Clair is quoted saying, if they will not support the
0: crown willingly, maybe they will with fire and sword. Braddock ends up saying that all the other colonies promised him everything and they gave him nothing. But then he says, Pennsylvania didn't say they would give me anything, and they ended up giving me everything.
1: All the Germans in Pennsylvania are terrified that Braddock is going to march up there and allow this crazy hussar, St. Clair, to start burning Pennsylvania to the ground. And they are really terrified. We have notes of uh, people writing their family terrified that this, this hussar is going to come up here and burn all their fields. So right away, they're like, how many extra wagons do we have? How many extra barrels of flour do we have? How much corn do we have? And they, within a matter of days, have a whole caravan of wagons heading down to meet Braddock and his troop to supply them for their expedition. Benjamin Franklin has just saved slash doomed this expedition. (laughs) Now, they've got somewhat of the supply problem in order. It's still not good, but at least it's enough so they can move on. But they have other problems. One of them is... Uh, resentment between the militia and the regulars, the commissioned and the non-commissioned officers. We mentioned this a little bit on our last episode. And that's where George Washington falls back into our story again.
0: When we left off, Washington was a colonel. But now if he wants to join this expedition, he realizes that his rank means nothing. With all these regulars over here now, even a lowly captain would outrank him and he would have to take orders. And Washington being you could say, a proud man or a man that held his honor in high esteem, he ends up thinking that he's going to resign his position because he doesn't want to take the demotion. Now, that being said,
1: Washington really wanted to go along on this expedition. He, uh, in the past, he told some of his friends, if I could just find a knowledgeable general to work under so that I could get some experience, because he admitted, even though he was a colonel, he had no experience, and that's what he really longed for. But he was also proud, like Andrews said. But Braddock right away realized that Washington is the type of young man that he wants on this campaign,
0: whether he's a commissioned officer or not. Maybe he wasn't successful, but he's already been to this region twice.
1: And Governor Dinwiddie has already spoken very highly of Washington and suggested to Braddock, hey, you want to bring this young officer in. So they found a good compromise to step around this. They offered Washington to work directly for the general as an aide to camp. This way, Washington would not be beheld to any other officer. He would get to sit down on all the war councils and have his opinion heard on every major decision the army had. So Washington agreed right away. Okay, let's go. Uh, another big problem he had off the bat was he was told there was going to be a thousand friendly Indians joining the campaign and marching with him the whole way. But when he shows up, there's like nobody there. But George Krogan, the Indian commissioner, assures Braddock that once you make it to Fort Cumberland, the Indians will be waiting for you there.
0: Fort Cumberland is not exactly close by. It takes Braddock a lot of time just to get there. And there is a semi-made road to arrive. But Fort Cumberland is kind of like the edge of the frontier. It's the furthest west British fort that they have in the Appalachians. Fort Cumberland is located
1: on the Maryland side of the Potomac River. And this is the final
0: staging point for the army. Up until Fort Cumberland, you have proper roads. So Braddock begins amassing his forces here and he realizes the daunting task that he has. We have to build a road from Fort Cumberland to Fort Duquesne. The problem is There's the Appalachian Mountains in between. And if you ever tried to walk over a group of mountains, let alone build a road, not only a road to march your army, but build a road so that wagons can travel up and down comfortably. And herds of livestock can follow behind. It's just going to be a crazy undertaking. But before he can set out, he's again plagued by supply problems. Yeah, Pennsylvania sent some stuff, but he's still waiting for other things to come. And so he has to wait and wait and wait. Finally, George Crogan, the uh, trader and Indian commissioner and friend to all local Pennsylvania and Ohio Indians, shows up. But he only comes with about 50 warriors that he brings from Ogwick. You remember in our last show, Caleb, that Queen Aliquippe and Ternagresen had fled there after the French took over Fort Necessity? So they show up, and there's, it's not just 50 warriors. I mean, there's also their wives and families. So, that's cool, right? Now, Andrew, it's important to note that these are
1: British redcoats. These are people that have lived in Europe mostly their whole lives. These people have never even seen a Native American before. And uh, it's it's very comical, the letters that they wrote home. We have some quotes here. Uh, One young private writes home to his mother, and he says, In the day the Indians are in our camp, at night they go into their own and make a most horrible noise. Uh, the men were amazed though. They watched them dance and they all gathered around almost like it was a play or a sport. And they would all just kind of watch and cheer them on as they would dance around the campfire and stuff like that. That was the only thing they had for amusement. And here's another quote. The Indians dance, clothing, and singing is like everything in this country. Horrible. Indian relations were one of Braddock's top orders. There's this stereotype that Braddock was stubborn and a bully and hated Indians and hated anybody that tried to critique him and in some ways he does share some of those characteristics but we can see from all his writings and all the th- things that people wrote about him and his direct orders from the King of England that he actually did everything within his power to make friends with the Indians And he was constantly saying that he needed them on the expedition because he needed people that knew the terrain.
0: So where does this come from, this whole idea that Braddock hated Indians? Yes. Well, there's two things. Um, Firstly, none of the Indians showed up when he was there. And obviously that means that that's because Braddock was a jerk. But the real reason that Indians weren't showing up is because for the last several decades, Indians have been getting screwed by the colonists see our previous episode on the walking purchase and other things. You just are really starting to see that the British probably don't have the Indians' best interests out, and the British say and claim that they're coming here to rescue them, but are they really? Now, there was a Delaware sachem known as Shingis, and he
1: apparently asked Braddock, what would happen to all this Ohio land if Braddock was victorious and secured it from the French? And he said that the general declared that the British would secure it and that no Indian would inherit it. Shingas was incredulous, and they say that he picked up all his warriors and he left right then. Uh, there's one problem with that story, though, and this is a story that's gone on for hundreds of years to show how much disregard Braddock had for Native Americans, but the one problem with it is is it's not true. There's literally no proof that he ever actually said this. And what we do have is third or fourth party account being interpreted by a Frenchman and then interpreted as propaganda to show what a jerk the British are.
0: It was an English prisoner of war soldier that had been told by the French that this is what Shingis had said. That would not hold up in a court of law. We can see from Braddock's letters back and forth to the
1: governors and to the king and the gifts that he brings Braddock really was going to do everything he possibly could to try to get Indian allies. Whether he really wanted them or not, he did appreciate that he needed them. Another big problem was there was other wars breaking out south of Iroquois territory at the time, almost like some civil wars where they're having some arguments with other Indians. So a lot of their warriors are heading down to that area. And at the same time, who are all these people that are allying with the French? Yes, a lot of them are prop nations of the Iroquois, a lot of Seneca, and even some Mohawk are involved due to the ones that moved up to Canada and became Catholics. So the Iroquois don't want to necessarily fight their own brothers and cousins, and they know that they are down there on the warpath with the French. So a lot of these things kind of build up to point towards why he really didn't have a lot of Native American involvement as opposed to just, he was rude to Indians
0: Regardless, though, he sets up a council of war, a conference, and he really wants to get all of these Native Americans on his side. So, all right, we got 50. Let's deal with 50. Now, it's really cool about this conference that we have is we know a lot of the people that were here that attended this. And so I'm going to give a brief synopsis of who some of the leaders were. The first guy was the main interpreter, and he was a guy named Andrew Montour. If you remember back in our diplomacy episode, we talked about Madame Montour, the great ambassador and deal breaker that the Iroquois used. Well, this is her son, and his influence was strong with all the Ohio River Valley Indians, and he was so popular that the French put a bounty on his head if they could capture or kill him. The other person we have here is Scarodi, also known as Monica Tutha. He was the other half-king that was with Tanagra overseeing the Ohio Indians before. His son also came along. We don't have his name recorded, but he was known as a brave warrior and an excellent scout. Another guy named Canacusi. Now, Canacusi was the son of Queen Aliquippa and he had become a friend of George Washington when Washington had visited and stopped by their village a couple years before. The British gave him a name, Newcastle. And then there was another one of Washington's acquaintances who had gone with Washington before, and that was the popular guy that I like named White Thunder. He was Kanekusi's stepson. And then, these names are just starting to sound like superheroes, Caleb. There was a guy named Silverheels, I'm guessing that he probably had this name because he was a pretty fast runner. Some of the people quote him as being the greatest fighter of his generation. He's going to be all over the place with Iroquois diplomacy for decades to come. And then we have Tanagreson's son. The British just kind of called him Johnny. Tanagreson, as we mentioned before, the half-king had died the previous year. And finally, we had Sconawandidas. And they probably had a hard time remembering his name too, so they called him Jerry. While Braddock starts this gathering, he pledges to never deceive the Mingo and the Iroquois, but to be friends with them forever and help them retake his lands. So Braddock is checking all the boxes. Even during this conference, he goes through the condolence ceremony and offers wampum to the chiefs uh, in mourning for Tanagerson dying the previous year. And he actually gives out lavish presents. He even overspends. People say to him, why did you bring so much stuff? You don't need that much.
1: Yeah, uh, he had approved 800 pounds for Indian gifts, and he ended up saying, no, we need 2,000 pounds worth of Indian gifts. And by pounds, I mean money. 2,000 pounds sterling for purchasing Indian gifts, more than double what was recommended. Mm -hmm. That, once
0: again, shows kind of counterintuitive to the stereotype. Now, the leader of the Lenape, also called the Delaware. A man named Shingus was also at this council, and Braddock really wanted Shingus to get on board because this is a whole nation of people that he could get. But the Delaware really feel kind of slighted by the British. The problem is, after things finish up, Braddock is still dealing with a supply shortage, and he comes to the realization that he needs to get rid of all non-essential personnel. And so a lot of these local colonial militias have a lot of their families tagging along to help them with things. And he says, this is just too many mouths to feed. We need to send them all home. He also says this to the Indians. He says, look, your families can't stay around. We can't afford to feed them. They need to go. And a lot of the local people there say, we can't send them back to Ogwick. That's a huge distance to travel. And they would be totally unprotected. We know that there's French and Indian raiding parties around here. We're not just going to let our families be taking that kind of risk. And so they say to themselves, we're going to go back with them and escort them and make sure that they're safe and all set. And then we'll come back and help you. And Braddock tries to get them to stay, but they're, they they got to look out for their families first. So they do keep their word. They head back to Ogwick and then they come back to Fort Cumberland. And they arrive back on July 10th.
1: So, Andrew, what day was Braddock defeated?
0: Uh, July 9th. After waiting several weeks at Fort Cumberland, he's there drilling his men. He's holding conference with the Indians. He's waiting for more supplies to come, and finally he decides he can't wait any longer. I can't wait for these Indian scouts to get back. I can't wait for more supplies to come. We're going now. Now, there's a reason also that he feels
1: like he's got to go, and that's that his last intelligence has told him the French fort, Duquesne, is completely understaffed and undersupplied. But rumor has it that there's large amounts of reinforcements coming. So in the back of Braddock's mind, he's got to rush to get there, and he can basically walk into the fort. But if he's too late, there's going to be a thousand reinforcements in there.
0: This is actually part of a much bigger campaign that's going on as well. Braddock's aiming for Fort Duquesne, but there's also an army that's going to be heading towards Fort Niagara. They're going to try and go up into Lake Champlain, and the British are also planning on invading into Canada, into Acadia, all simultaneously. But this is the main thing that they want to get. The problem is road building sucks. We had mentioned before they're going down mountains and up mountains and across valleys. It's just wilderness. They have to cut through little bits of shrubs, and then they have to cut down great big huge trees, and they have to get the trunks low enough so that the wagons can actually roll over them. Also,
1: Braddock brought something more than just his good looks with him from Europe. He brought cannons. And not cannons that most people use in the New World at the time. He brought big cannons, ones for smashing huge stone castles. And so every time they come to a creek, He has to have his engineers build a bridge over every single little creek to get these cannons. At one point, a spy gets back to the French at Fort Duquesne, and they tell him that they're coming with these huge 50-pounder cannons. And the French officer is quoted saying, that's impossible, nobody can get cannons over the (laughs) mountains.
0: Oh, they're going to try. Now Braddock, initially he has about 2100 men and he's got 300 guys with axes trying to make this road and clear the way. And they got to go 100 miles. But after one week, they've only gone 22 miles and they're still running load on supplies. And the problem is the further they go, the worse it gets because wagons start breaking and horses start dying from trying to pull all these supplies and cannons around.
1: Yeah, some of these hills are so steep, sometimes the horses and the
0: carriages just fall right off the cliff. <laughs> oh, there goes another one. <laughs> so after all of this frustration, Braddock, decides that he's going to come up with a a better strategy and he wants to do what he dubs a flying column and that's where he's going to split his forces he's going to send 1400 men ahead with minimal supplies a smaller force back behind that will continue to work on getting these wagons and heavy stuff and that way the slower
1: troops that are behind can indirectly work as a supply line for the people that are in the front George Washington himself claims that this was his idea And he recommended it to the general, and he thought that it was just a great idea.
0: Well, good for George. Let's see how this works out. So
1: after three weeks of hard work, they finally approached the Monongahela River.
0: All the while, they have had these French Indian scouts that have kind of been shadowing their movements so that they can know what they're up against. But every time they
1: try to shoot at them or chase after them, they just disappear into the woods. So the British soldiers are starting to think that The Indians and the French are just terrified of them. And, you know, we're professional soldiers. We're here. Nobody can stand up against us. When in reality, the Indians that are fighting with the French are kind of just feeling the English out. They're trying to see what they'll do, how close they can get before they're noticed. And will they stay in rank? Will there be mass confusion if they try and, you know, form
0: up to shoot at us? Meanwhile, Braddock only has eight Indian scouts. As we mentioned, everybody else has gone back to Ogwick. And so he's got these eight folks. The eight that he has are the names that I mentioned earlier. Monica Tutha and a couple people head towards Fort Duquesne to do a reconnaissance mission. And when he gets there, he maybe doesn't have a chance to look around as much as he wants, but he reports Breck to Braddock that it eh, looks like there's maybe a hundred or so troops there. So Braddock's
1: thinking, great. The reinforcements have not arrived and we're only days away from the fort. So we're
0: going to have our chance to take this without even a fight. If Braddock had had more scouts, perhaps they could have done a more thorough job of checking the fort. Because the problem is there wasn't just a
1: hundred French there. There was several hundred French and 20
0: different nations of Native Americans. Totaling maybe close to 640 people. Just warriors. Yes. They have Ottawa's and Ojibwa's from Upper Canada. They've got Huron remnants. They've got Catholic Mohawks that are living up there in the St. Lawrence River Valley. They've got Potawatomis coming from Michigan. They have Winnebago's coming from Wisconsin. Hold on, Andrew. Hold on right there. You're telling me the French have Winnebago's? Yeah.
1: Braddock is out in the woods, sleeping in the dirt, walking through the wilderness, and the French uh, have
0: Winnebago's at their camp. Well, yeah, they traveled all the way from Wisconsin. Are, Caleb, are you thinking of, like, RVs? Well, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the Native American people group known as the Winnebagoes. Yeah, I knew what you were talking about. Okay, good. Winne- Winnebago's
1: the, pe- the the nation. Yeah. Got in, it. That, okay. That's what I... I knew that. Not camping equipment. Nope. Why,
0: why would I... Th- That'd be stupid. Yeah, it would. Okay, good. In total, we're looking at about 640 Native Americans complementing these French forces. Once word gets out that the British are just maybe a day away from the fort, the French start to realize that we got to just go and try and ambush them or do something. The Indian allies that are there are initially very reluctant to attack such a huge British force. 2,100? I mean, right now we're looking at, with all the Indians and all the French, maybe... 900 some people? So you're vastly outnumbered. But the French commander who was very sensitive to Native American lifestyle, he was a man named Daniel de Bougeau. And he dresses in full Native American war regalia, complete with war paint, and starts doing a traditional dance and convinces them to follow his lead. And after getting them all riled up, it kind of reminds me as the coach getting the team riled up for the championship game, getting all the football players crazy to go out there and put on a great game. And so they just open up the gates of the fort and take off.
1: Now, Beaujo, he was brilliant in a lot of ways for doing this. And one reason I'll point out is Native American warriors, they were not big fans of sitting in forts and going through sieges. They tended to do the fallback and wait for a time to strike approach. The French commander knew that if he couldn't convince the Indians to go out there and fight with his men, he didn't have enough men to do it. Like we said, he maybe had 200. uh, So he needed them. So unless he could convince them to go out there and attack the British, he knew
0: that they were going to leave the fort and it would be him with his 200 men just waiting to be sieged. The French think to themselves our best chance to catch the British is surprise them in an ambush, but it doesn't exactly go that way.
1: So right around 1 p.m. on July 9th, Lieutenant Colonel Gage and his men, they're working as the scouts at the front of the column, combing the woods to make sure it's safe for the rest of the column. Gage has one of his soldiers come yelling through the woods that the Indians are upon them. As soon as he makes it back to the line, Gage quickly jumps into order and lines all his men up and have them lock their muskets. And you can hear the war whoops coming straight at them. And they said it was just a terrible, horrifying sound. But they all proved to be men and soldiers and they stood their ground. They presented arms and fired, killing several warriors and killing Bougeot, the French commander, instantly shooting him in the head. After this volley... A hundred French all panic and run all the way back to Fort Duquesne. So the British are thinking, things are going really well for us right now. We've just killed their captain. We've just driven all of them back. We really are invincible. We really are the best soldiers in the world. But by killing Bougeot, this might have proved to be the worst thing they could have done because now all of a sudden, the Indians are not taking orders from a French captain They're going to fall back to the warfare they know, guerrilla warfare. The Indians duck behind trees. And the trees back then, they say that you could hide three people behind one tree. And the Indians learned to shoot from hunting, where they actually aim down the barrels. And the English learned to shoot from the hip in mass volleys. Mass volleys don't work very well in huge, dense forests. So even though they drove them back from the first volley, all of a sudden, Indians are popping through the smoke, taking a shot and disappearing. Popping from behind a tree, taking a shot and disappearing. All in the meantime, more and more smoke is filling underneath the canopy of the trees and it's getting harder and harder to see. And all the Indians are dressed in brown and camouflage-type paint while the Redcoats, in, in particular, their officers, are standing there in bright red uniforms in the middle of the woods. And one by one, they start falling, and they start dying. And the battle, even though it started so promising, starts to all of a sudden feel like, hey, we might be losing this. To all of a sudden, we'd better fall back. And then all of a sudden, we better run so lieutenant colonel gage and his men decide to start falling back but the faster they try and retreat the more the indians are starting to push on top of them around them they're starting to get the high ground and shoot at them from separate angles and they keep falling back but when they do they start to run into their own men and when they do that this is where the redcoats really start to show how green a lot of them are and how unexperienced because Instead of spreading out and protecting the flanks, which Braddock had ordered them to do, they're kind of falling back to their animal instinct, and they're all just trying to huddle together, thinking safety in numbers. Meanwhile, the Indians are getting on top of the ledges and on top of the banks of the Monongahela and shooting down at them. And the surviving soldiers report that a lot of them never even saw the enemy. They just saw a puff of smoke from the woods and then another one of their friends was dead and then another puff of smoke and another was dead. And then the Indians start to get a good idea. They know that the Redcoats fight differently than the Indians. The Redcoat soldier won't really do anything on his own fruition. He needs to be told what to do. And you have all the officers on their horses. And in European warfare, it was kind of dishonorable to kill an officer what people would do is they'd kill the rank and file, and then they would try and capture the officer, the officer would surrender once the battle was lost. And then you could ransom him or parade him around back home like, for, your, uh, for your trophy before ransoming him. But the Indians are going to start shooting every officer that they can see, and they can tell them right apart because they're the ones sitting on horses. And this has devastating effects. Out of the 82 officers... In Braddock's army, 63 are killed or wounded. Right off the bat, you've just lost all of your leadership. And all you have are green soldiers that have this image of the savage warrior that's going to come out and take your scalp and put a tomahawk through your head. You have 1,300 green redcoats with no experience in North American woods, with no officers, with a terrifying enemy that they've never fought before.
0: As the natives are going through and finding the corpses of the dead soldiers, they're scalping them and they're taking them and nailing them to the tree for the soldiers that are standing around to see. A lot of
1: the soldiers are laying on the ground wounded and they report that you could hear the sound of the war club breaking their skulls and as they would walk in and find somebody still alive and you'd just hear this thud noise of a war club caving in a skull. The soldiers are now getting it in their head. They can't stand and fight because they can't even see who they're shooting at. Our only chance for survival is to run. Drop everything we have, drop our musket, drop our pack, drop all our supplies, and just run. So some of the men are starting to do this. You're starting to see the line thin out. The bravest are standing, but you know here and there, they're starting to turn tail and just run. Braddock, word has gotten back to him uh, that something is going on up front. He doesn't even know what. He's thinking he's going to ride up there and they're going to say, we've got them on the run, we'll be at Fort Duquesne in a few hours. But then all of a sudden he's starting to see men running the opposite way. He and Washington are riding, trying to get to the front of the column to see what's going on. Braddock gets to the front and everything is in utter chaos. Half the people are fleeing at that point. There's people wounded and screaming on the ground, and you can hear war whoops and shots coming everywhere. Just to get up to the front of the line, Braddock has five horses shot from underneath him. Five? Five horses. No way. That's what it says anyway. All right, carry on. (laughs) George Washington himself ends up having two as he's trying to follow the general to the front of the line. When he gets there, Braddock is trying to get all of his troops back into some sort of uh, resemblance of an army. And Washington tells him, General, we need to take to the trees and fight the Indians American style. Meaning behind the trees, hopping from tree to tree, covering each other, and not just standing here in the middle of the road where they're just shooting down on us. But Braddock allegedly told Washington, No, we're professional soldiers. We're going to show our bravery and stand our ground. In the meantime, half the army has got their backs turned to them and they're running the other way. St. Clair, his quartermaster general, comes through the crowd with a bullet hole through his chest. And blood coming from his mouth, he tells the general, allegedly in Italian, get to the high ground or we're all dead. And then he passes out on the ground.
0: Why did he say it in
1: Italian? Well, that's a good question. There's some theories. One of them is that he may have said it in not a very respectful way to Braddock. Something like, you idiot, we're doomed unless we have men protecting our flank on the hill. So he said it in Italian that way Braddock would understand it, but the common soldier wouldn't hear him talking like that. Another one is Sinclair was terrified and he didn't want to give the persona that he was terrified and they were all doomed to all the common soldiers that are hopefully going to fight to the last man. And Braddock agrees, and he sends men to try and protect this ledge, but they end up getting overwhelmed and killed. And then Braddock gets shot, and he falls off his horse, and it's bad. And Washington himself comes to his aid. Throughout all the shots and the people retreating, Washington steps up and, you know, like a hero, he... Commands orders, gets a wagon brought over, has some men lift him, loads him into the, the wagon and sends him out of there. Washington's looking around and every single officer is dead or dying. And he's the only one that has not been wounded. He's not even a commissioned officer, but things are going to kind of fall to him just by default, because he's the only
0: other one there with some experience in fighting these wars. Why does this keep happening to him? We mentioned before that now people are starting to turn and fall back, but they're bumping into other people that are in the road. And so it's... Have you ever tried to go down the stairs after a a sports game or a concert, and everybody's going to the bathroom or everybody's leaving at once? Or maybe you're trying to get back after everybody's going the opposite direction? It's just not a very efficient way to move.
1: There are a couple things that happen at this point in the battle that most likely save the rest of Braddock's forces. And the interesting thing is they're both kind of ironic. And one of them is this flying column that was in the front. Braddock insisted that the Indian gifts that we talked about that he'd spent all the money on were with the flying column. That way, when they took the fort, he would have them all there and he could make peace with all the Indians that had allied with the French. The Indians have just found this huge wagon full of gifts, and now they're starting to plunder it. So there's less and less Indians pushing the pile, and there's more and more starting to take their scalps, starting to get some rum, starting to take muskets and goods And some of them are starting to turn around and walk back, thinking, okay, this was a successful campaign. And here's the second part that's kind of ironic, and that's Braddock didn't have a lot of faith in the Virginia regulars. He believed that the Redcoat commissioned officers and soldiers were the superior force, so he had the Virginia regulars and the other colonial soldiers in the back of the column. Ironically, these are the people that end up saving the rest of the column. Because they take to the trees, and they hold off the rest of the Indians and the French as they push forward. And then they wait for the majority of the fleeing redcoats to get past them. They do an orderly retreat and start falling back, keeping everything contained. If they had just turned and ran with everybody else, they most likely would have followed them and killed them all. There is one legend that Braddock says... My blues, I've never lost as good of men as you. And they say that he was referring to the Virginia soldiers who ended up being the only ones out of all the army that actually stood and fought. And a lot of them died in order to protect the the troops as they were retreating. Something like 60% of them were killed. But they didn't retreat. They just slowly moved back, protecting the column as it retreated. Washington is quoted saying, as he tried to rally the fleeing troops, it was like trying to stop the bears of the mountain.
0: As the British forces turn and flee, it's going to still be a free-for-all. People are going to think that the French and Indians are right on top of them and they're going to be exhausted and not stop. Many of them will die on the way because of their wounds or starvation or shock. When it's all said and done, a group total of 891 French and Indians took on the flying column of 1,300 regulars and colonial men. The French had 30 killed and 57 wounded. British casualties were 500 plus killed and over four hundred and fifty wounded, which is over sixty-six percent casualty rate. With an eighty something percent
1: casualty rate for officers.
0: Monica Tutha, the Indian half king viceroy, loses his son, but the others survive. This is one of the greatest British defeats in colonial history. You won't see numbers like this again, even in the Revolutionary War. You you won't see death totals massing this high percentage.
1: Now, there were other losses besides money and besides lives in this battle. A big one that is really going to hurt the English in the coming war is the loss of their cannon caravan. Like we said, Braddock was carrying huge cannons, cannons that the French had commented were impossible to move over the mountains, but Braddock had gotten a ton of them there. And the French commandant is quoted saying, It was very nice of the English to deliver the supply of wagons to us because they are going to take these cannons and they are going to ship them up to Niagara and they're going to ship some to Montreal and they're going to use some here on the Ohio frontier and they are going to use the English's own cannons against them for the Seven Years' War. And on top of that, like we said, a lot of these soldiers decided to just drop everything and run. That includes their muskets, their bayonets, their coats. The supplies that this group of British left behind is enough to swell the ranks of these 20 Indian nations that are allied with the French to fill the storehouses and block houses of the French. And in doing so, this campaign to wipe the French on a three-pronged approach out of North America has just made them stronger and more deadly than they ever
0: were before. Finally, after they've made it to safety, Braddock has a miserable journey. For three days, he's in the back of this wagon, and they finally make it to a a stopping point at a plantation. And there, after three days, Braddock realizes that he's going to die, and he talks to Washington and says, see to it that my burial arrangements are made and get the men back safely. And he slowly starts to slip away and he says, Who would have thought it? We'll get them next time, boys. Braddock dies. Washington takes the bloody sash that the general had and carries it with him whenever he's doing anything on campaign for the rest of his life or he leaves it at Mount Vernon. Washington makes sure that a grave is dug in the middle of the road that Braddock built, laying him down in there. They cover him up and they have the army continue to walk over the grave to make sure that any trace of it is totally taken away so that no risk that anybody will come back and disturb or desecrate the grave.
1: Years later, I think it was even the 19th century, wasn't it? They actually found his body when they were putting a road in, ironically. Yes. They did some testing or found the piece of cloth on him and they were able to identify him. And they reburied him and gave him a a proper burial with a monument and everything. And you can still see it in uh, Pennsylvania, right? Mm
0: -hmm. News begins to spread. Back in Pennsylvania, Governor Morris and Benjamin Franklin are in a total state of disbelief and shock. Governor Dinwiddie can't believe it. They just assumed that Braddock couldn't help but succeed with so many men. It just did not enter their collective psyche that anything could possibly go wrong. When
1: Dinwiddie got the message... He actually said, it's obviously a mistake, and he just brushed it off, and he said, "Uh, I'll wait for the next message to come, because this messenger obviously misheard something. And then he's biting his nails, waiting for the next messenger, and the next messenger comes, and it's even worse news, because the next message came directly from Washington.
0: You have to remember, Washington helps organize the retreat, but he's not the guy in charge anymore. That falls to Colonel Gage. And Gage leads the troops back to Fort Cumberland, but very soon thereafter, he decides that we're completely pulling out. We don't know if the French and Indians will be upon us soon, and Fort Cumberland's not defensible, and so we're going to bring the troops to Philadelphia for winter quarters. Uh, What month is this, Caleb? Uh, This is like July 13th. Well, yeah, winter comes... wait, second. He's going to winter quarters in July. And that's
1: exactly what a lot of the governors were saying, because by pulling out, all these frontier towns are going to be completely wide open to French and Indian attack. So the governors, Dinwiddie especially, instantly starts writing him saying, I know you wouldn't do this because you are an honorable man, so you would not leave us in the bind like this for all of our
0: women and settlers to all be killed. In fact, many of the Indians are probably gone. If you could just take some men and counterattack, you could probably take Fort Duquesne right now. And Andrew, a lot of people look back and hindsight is 2020, 20,
1: but they really could because right after this battle all the Indians took their bounty and they headed home. They wanted to show their trophies off and go back and give them to their villages. Fort Duquesne was not a very big fort. They say it could really only hold about 30 people comfortably. So within a matter of weeks, they send half of the French soldiers to different, they disperse them throughout different forts across New France uh, for winter. So you could literally go up there with several hundred men and you probably could have taken the fort and you wouldn't have to fight any Indians who proved to be the the bane to this campaign
0: but all of the surviving soldiers have post traumatic stress disorder now i'm sure and they're not going back and they want to get as far away from the frontier as they can and so gage sends his men to philadelphia and what the governors feared would happen is exactly what happens This is going to leave all of western Pennsylvania, western Virginia, western Maryland, western New York, and even further, open to raids and attacks. The other problem is now that they've seen a huge resounding French and Indian victory as many of these other props and nations that were on the fence before, throw in with the French. The most notable being the Lenape or the Delaware.
1: And uh, this battle ends up having even bigger implications because they end up getting Braddock's logbook and at this time, technically, France and England were still at peace. France has his logbook where it talks about all their plans to invade Niagara Falls, to invade Quebec. And this is going to get sent to Europe. And the king of France is going to be able to hold this up and say, what's up with all these peace talks that you guys have been saying? And meanwhile, you're doing this secret campaign to, take o- to knock us completely out of North America. So this is going to give him all he needs to start the Seven Years' War. This is going to convince the French that the time for small skirmishes is
0: over and this is war with England. We hope that you'll join us next time for our third installment of the French and Indian War. Next time we'll focus on the frontier wars and also shift focus to what's happening in New York back in Iroquois homeland. We want to thank each and every one of you that responded by taking the time out to write us an iTunes review. And so we wanted to just go through and mention a few of you. We actually got some from some new countries. So first we want to thank um and also Mechanical Harvest and Muck Dog Pat, all from America. Also, we got our first British review. So thank you to Cath ASF. And we also, Andrew, got
1: our very first Irish review. This lovely lass in Ireland writes, I'm really enjoying the fascinating informative history of these native americans lots of information about their lifestyles as well well worth listening to so
0: thank you very much for that did you see that she wrote it on saint patrick's day too
1: oh that's that's like
0: a double review yeah so if you guys haven't yet please leave us an itunes review and we would love to read and mention you on air Uh, Don't forget to like us on Facebook. You can also visit our website, longhousepodcast.com, or follow us on Twitter at Iroquois History. We'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody.